0: Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. We are very glad you're here with us today. We all encounter radical challenges, and we face big choices about how we approach life in the most challenging moments, and we learn to survive and maybe even thrive. This is one of the most inspiring episodes we've ever done. Today, we're joined by combat veteran, retired U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Travis Mills, a man whose life story reads like an epic novel filled with twists, turns, and a hefty dose of heroism. You see, Travis lost all four limbs in combat, and what he did next is a blueprint for designing a legendary life. Travis has become the embodiment of resilience, proving that it's not what happens to you but how you respond that truly defines you. You know we have a big spot in our hearts for veterans around here, and we love seeing entrepreneur vets thrive. Travis is a serial entrepreneur, the driving force behind the Travis Mills Foundation, and the author of Bounce Back, a playbook for facing life's toughest challenges with grace and gusto. Make sure you listen all the way to the end. You don't want to miss any of Travis's unrelenting spirit, wisdom, and humor. He's really funny. Embark on a voyage with the Category Pirates newsletter, one of the most read paid business newsletters on Substack, where the art of category design is the compass guiding you through the unexplored realms of market innovation. Dive into the depths of creating and dominating new markets, learning from the captains of category design themselves. Hoist your sails and chart a course to undiscovered success. Subscribe today and master the seas of opportunity. It's like the Harvard Business Review, but for pirates. Go to CategoryPirates.com and sign up today. Now, hey-ho, let's go.
1: So, Travis, I have a million things I, I can't wait to dig into with you. Uh, and I'm curious, is there somewhere special that you would like to start? No, I mean wherever you want. You know, um, people wonder where I'm from. I'm from
2: Michigan. I grew up, born and raised in in uh, the Thumb area of Michigan. And then other people, you know, wonder, you know, uh, like what it was like when I joined the military. So there's
1: any time period you want. I'm open book uh, twice over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, twice over. Congratulations on both. Okay, well maybe start here. What was it that made you, as a younger man? want to serve our country
2: well I you know I feel like this is maybe a little more serious because I always joke around and um, had a girlfriend moved home from college playing football to like be more more near her and then she had a boyfriend I didn't know about so I joined the military but uh, but the truth is I actually just I didn't enjoy college my whole life everybody was like you got to go to college you got to go to college right and college kind of it became like this the standard like you have to go to college just kind of like the norm and I went for a semester and I didn't care for it. And I passed my classes or whatever. Then I went back to my mom and dad's uh, two and a half hours away. And I went to college, you know, for a, half a semester. And when I was at the college, kind of trying to figure my life out at 18, I was like, this just isn't for me right now. And uh, they had recruiters that would come to the college and set up tables. And I started talking to the Army recruiter and – you know, was pretty interested in the idea of serving my country always, but my dad was in the army and, um, I went down to the recruiting station, uh, like the next day and I talked to the Marines, the air force. Uh, I didn't talk to the coast guard or the Navy, but I talked to the Marines, air force and the Marine and the army, and I narrowed it down and I went with the army, you know, and, um, I think within two weeks of that, I was, I was off to basic
1: training. And what was it about the army that attracted you uh, other than maybe your dad? Uh, I went, see, I went and my mom and my, my mom and my uncle
2: were always like, you have to go, if you're going to go in service, do something that is going to help you and benefit you when you get out, like make it. My uncle Brian was in the army like 10 years. And he's like, make the military work for you. He says, as much as you work for them, they can work for you. And um, my dad was a mechanic. My uncle Brian was a, a truck driver. And, and I went in there and they showed me airborne infantry video. And I was like, Oh, that, yeah, no, that looks awesome. And, uh, I was going to be a lineman or an electrician is what I thought was. And I went in there and showed me that. And I was like, hmm, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. So $24,000 signing bonus. And uh, within two weeks, I was I was
1: in basic training. And what was it like for you as you were kind of embarking on that as a young man, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, big eyes, <laughs> joining into your, getting into your training?
2: I, I was pretty fortunate in life to be pretty uh, athletically gifted. Um, and I don't say that to be arrogant or cocky. I just say that because I, you know, I, I was the captain of the football, baseball, and basketball teams and, in, in high school and, and, um, I could do most things that are physical and grueling. So basic wasn't hard. Um, our slogan for our, I don't know, our, our company was play the game. And just like, uh, you know, like the hourglass, right? It's always going to run out. So the, the training was going to stop. Base training was going to get over. It was going to be done. So I just had to play the game for the 14 weeks of basic training, and um, I advanced in infantry training after that
1: And in terms of your athletic uh, capabilities, uh, Travis, were you also as a younger man into uh, MMA fighting Jiu- Jitsu and the like?
2: You know, I, uh, we didn't have a gym like that around. like I was a karate I was in karate when I was younger. like I always watched a Walker, Texas Ranger, and you know truck, <laughs> Those fight that, scenes. Oh, the back spinning back kick three times in a row but i was actually 1993 karate state champion in michigan so there's that but uh, i was seven um but
1: hey listen that's a pretty badass seven-year-old right there
2: oh yeah yeah it was fun it was fun and then uh the funny thing is i can say i've never been like in a real fist fight like i've been in a lot of karate like uh matches but i've never been like in a real fist fight um so it taught me not to like go just go punch people or get in fights but and self-control but uh
1: isn't that an interesting thing about MMA? People think that if you get mm-hmm. trained you're going to walk around beating everybody up for fun. Yeah. And the point is the most trained warriors in the world are the least likely to get into a physical situation in the in the in the open world in the in the real world. Oh yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And you know, I um I didn't do much of the MMA stuff. I love MMA. It's my favorite sport to watch. And when I got into the army they had what's called ground fighting tactics, which is like the military's version of of jujitsu and all that to combine. So I did a lot of that and I enjoyed it. And uh I had this one platoon sergeant who would run his mouth all the time, but he never wanted to go against me. And um he had a lieutenant that was like big jujitsu guy and MMA guy from West Point. And uh this was my third um deployment over there, like right before it, like this guy, Lieutenant March. Um we were about the same age and this platoon started kept running his mouth. So I was like, all right, we'll send him out here. And then before I you know it, we'd be just going right at it in the middle of the team room. But I beat him every time. So
1: I <laughs> felt pretty good about it. <laughs> of course you did. Now, I got to tell you, I, I love your Instagram feed. Thanks. And, and, and I'd be curious what it's like for the guys that you train uh, jujitsu with. But, you know, watching you on the mat, tap out these guys who in some cases are bigger than you, and, of course, all of them have, let's just call it, physical advantages that you no longer have. And you tap these fucking guys out. And I'm like, is this all staged? This can't be staged because the guys you're rolling with are pretty tough-looking guys. Well,
2: I mean, like, when Jocko Willink was in a video, he's just showing me moves and things I can do. Like, there's no way I'm really going to beat Jocko. Um, but, no, I went against get some, some, like, white belts. And the thing is, what they don't understand is they've been in, like, jiu-jitsu, like, six months, eight months, right? It's new to them. I trained in the military, ground fighting tactics like three times a week, you know, for six plus years. So it's not like a new concept to me, what what they're trying to do or I'm trying to do. And then when we started rolling around, um, one of the guys got really mad that I beat him. Like he just, he couldn't get past the thought of it. And I'm like, look, I got nothing to lock in. You're not going to get an arm bar on my little arm, you know? And I'm not sure if, you know, I'm going to ever get a leg lock. I mean, I have no arms and legs, so... It, it's, it's really hard to, to, to get me in a certain thing unless it's like a, a rear naked choke. And um, so it's not it's not as much stage, but I think I think a lot of it's like learning because you're taught to do a certain thing, right? You grab this if they come and do this. So when people try to grab my wrist and it's not there, then they're like, oh, no, what do I do next? You know, and how do uh, I get this I fucking think,
1: guy in an arm? Bar?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's my advantage is like I'm pretty stout. You know, I'm what you call huscular because I can still pop my pecs, but boy, my fat
1: and I'm working on that tomorrow. You know, I'm going to be, uh, I'm on the manana diet usually. Yeah. I'm a little, I'm huscular myself and I'm a little more on the husk and a little light on the musk side now <laughs> right Not myself. No, I, you know, and I'm on, uh,
2: I was on the cover of men's health magazine, um, uh, October and November of uh, this year of 23. And, like so amazing to see so fucking amazing to see congratulations people people are like oh my gosh because they're like top 35 strongest men in the last 35 years or whatever and i made the cover which is nice um and people look at me and they're like you're not that tough and i'm like it's mental toughness i'm I'm good at mental toughness so that's that's why i got on the cover there but no can anybody describe
1: you as not being that tough as compared to well
2: like men's health is like all your 12 pack 14 pack you know ripped up all this
1: and i'm not that guy yeah, but you and I both know it's one thing to be a male supermodel, it's a whole other thing to be tough. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. And you know,
2: I, I I appreciate that they put me on the cover and they were able to, you know, promote my foundation and all the stuff that we do there. Um, so that was cool. I mean, it's cool. It's 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 truly an honor and I don't try to get too big headed about it, but sometimes I do let people know. I'm like, "Oh, have you seen this before?" and I just pull the, you know, I, I usually keep it in my back pocket, uh, picture folded up of the cover. I'm like, did you see this?
1: Anybody? <laughs> <But>. <laughs> and I'm curious, just just sort of, because I know how guys can be sometimes. Has anybody tried to sort of F with you at all, you know, since you've come back, thinking they might be able to take advantage of you because of your situation? Has that happened at all in some bar somewhere or some weird situation? No, because I, I think um, I've had a few
2: times where we've, we've had to get like, I was like, look, you know we can have a real conversation we can do this and i have no problem you know and i just like reason with them i'm like but the second that you do something to me and i have no arms no legs and you're the aggressor like everybody in here is gonna like they're gonna take care of it so I just want you to know like it's not gonna go well so we can just we can just calm it down we can call it a day and go by our separate ways but i can usually de-escalate any situation you know i mean uh The the funny thing is like, so I own a few businesses and uh, the Travis Mills Foundation is doing very well. We have 35 employees. I have a restaurant, uh, the White Duck Brew Pub has got 60 employees. I have a marina um, that's in the summertime. It's got about 35, 40 employees. Um, In the wintertime, not that much. And I'm like the nice guy, right? I'm always smiling, I'm always happy. And that's who I really am. But sometimes people forget that my job was literally to... You know, seek out and destroy the enemy. Like I've, I've had to shoot people. I've had to blow them up with grenades. I've had to pick my buddies up off the battlefield in body bags. And there's a side of me that I wouldn't say I'm scared of, because uh, I'm not scared of losing my temper or control. I've never yelled at my wife in anger, to be honest with you. I've never yelled at my wife and said something derogatory towards her. I don't think it solves anything. Um, but I will say that people sometimes take my kindness as a weakness, and then they have to find out, like first, you know, firsthand, like. Oh, oh, okay. So Travis does have another side of him where it's like more direct and more serious. Now, I will never belittle somebody like, hey, come here, moron. I'm like, hey, let's have a conversation about what you're doing wrong and how you're going to fix it. And then um, what I tell everybody, is we all work together. And the truth is we all do work together. And everybody's trying to accomplish the same goal and be successful. But the day they find out they work for me is usually the last day they work for me. Because they did something where I had to step in and say, like, well, that wasn't very professional. That was a terrible decision you just made. And now we're gonna make corrective, um, you know, like corrective uh, measures. And most, you know, I'd say eight out of ten times. Sometimes I can forgive people or I can understand where they're coming from. But eight out of ten times, if you got me to that limit, it's done, and it's no hard feelings. Hey, good luck on your way. Thanks for your time, and and hope you hope you do well wherever you go. But I, I think that's that about the most taken advantage of. I think that's that's kind of where it comes in, where people see my jovial joking around smiling side and they forget the whole side where I was like a leader of combat soldiers <laughs> and like and all you know and then I'm not like a I'm not a dummy just because I hit a bomb I didn't see I'm not a dummy I mean I got early
1: retirement how smart am I you know what I mean <laughs> now of course I'd love I want to go back to um that day and the incident that uh, created the the physical situation you're in now but before we go there uh, one of the other reasons I wanted to talk to you is you're an incredible entrepreneur. And I love entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes. And a dear friend of mine, um, I wonder if you know him, Iron Mike's Deadman by any chance? That name ring a bell? He was in the Marines. I don't know. I, I, feel, like I'm, I feel like I feel like haven't met that, that guy, but I don't, I'm not, it's not really where I would have met him at. I'd love to introduce the two of you, actually. It'd be I think you'd be good friends and there might be some cool things you could do together. And one of his, he's an entrepreneur, combat Marine. And um, his mission now is to really twofold: one, help inner-city kids via boxing. He's got a charity, a non-boxing mm-hmm. gym where he teaches kids uh, all the great things that that fighting teaches kids. And in addition, he's got a marketing agency, and he helps um, uh, typically veteran entrepreneurs build their businesses. And he wrote a book called BVE Black Veteran Entrepreneur. And he and I have spent a lot of time talking about the transition from the military to entrepreneurship. And so I'm curious what you think about that transition um, for yourself and then maybe uh, for others as well.
2: Well, I think that um, it's a matter of many layers you want to peel back. Uh, I feel like we live in a nation that wants you to go get a job and work for somebody and not go on your own to try new things. And that kind of bothers me. So I encourage people to like, if they have a dream to go after it, my best friend um, for three years, he was going to, there's a kayaking canoe rental place that was going to come up for sale. And I had to, like for three years, I just hounded him. I was like, dude, just do it. Like you'll never, ever be upset when you bet on yourself. And he did this past year. He did. And it's gone really, really well for him. And I couldn't be more happy and proud of you know what he's done. Um, and then I think about my injuries and I'm like, you know what? My plan was 20 years in the military I was going to be a high school teacher and football coach, and I was going to have a side hustle of a lawn care business with some of the juniors and seniors. And I was going to try to get the screen printing contract for the school so I could like screen print like the, the shirts. So I always had like a little entrepreneurial side to me, I feel like. But I, I do believe that with my injuries, it's helped me realize that you really only get one chance at life and you might as well do what you want um, and try new things and not be afraid. And the fact that people fail every day, um, is a motivator, but it's also a safety blanket, right? That's a, or a safety net. Because it's like, well, if they, if they failed, they can still get back up and still keep going. So, I mean, I went in and started flipping houses, right? The market wasn't saturated. I flipped eight, like eight houses. Did fairly well. Uh, And then my buddy and I just bought a marina. When I say I bought a marina, I mean, the bank owns it. You know, like we didn't know what we were doing. It's like a motel and a marina. And we bought it eight years ago, and now we've expanded from 70 boats slips to 180 some. We have brand new rental boats. We have a cafe. And then next to that, we put a restaurant in. And I've never ran a restaurant before, but boy, it sounds cool. So you just surround yourself with good people, and you chase your dreams and your goals. And um, and if I don't, I'm not saying I live without fear of failure, because that's what drives you, right? Like, I don't want to fail. But I will say that because of my injuries and having no arms and no legs anymore and realizing that, you get one shot at life, make the most of it, do what you really want to do. I'm able to, I'm able to see things maybe more clear or take more chances because I'm not, I'm not worried about, you know, failing. Cause I realize when you put it all on you, the only person that can let you fail is you. And, you know, like <laughs> the, the foundation, we started the Travis Mills foundation. There was some sleepless nights. There was a lot of stress, a lot of, is this even going to work? You know, and I can remember those days and those nights and, I've had those at my marina. I've had those at my restaurant. Um, and when you're an entrepreneur, you find out forty hours a work week is not real. But luckily, when you're military, you find out forty hours of work week isn't real either. So <laughs> you just do a job. You,
1: you mean if there's bombs going off, you can't take a coffee break?
2: Well, I tried to put my fifteen minute break in. I was like, "Well, no, no, no it's time for my fifteen minute break." But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so so I don't know. It, it uh, yeah yeah. I, I guess I guess that's that's like the real the real fun thing is like in the nation we live in um, I wish people took more chances on themselves, not to say go bankrupt or like go in the hole or like put yourself where you're in any risk or danger, where you're going to ruin your family's lives or anything like that. But,
1: but to bet on yourself is, you know, it's pretty key, key and crucial for entrepreneurs. So I'm curious, I I hear from a lot of folks in your position in terms of the fact that they're um, uh, maybe they're coming out of college and they have debt They're married, maybe they've had a child or two, and they have a dream to be an entrepreneur. But the fact that they either have a family or are starting a family gives them trepidation about it. They feel like, oh, well, you know, if I got a good job, a good steady job, I wouldn't be quote unquote worried. And that taking on the quote unquote risk of being an entrepreneur is not something I want to quote unquote put my family through. You seem, at least based on everything I've been able to consume of yours, to be a very committed husband. A very committed father. Um, and yet this is the path that you chose. So I'm I'm curious how you think about those things, Travis.
2: Well, my wife always says, Don't you do that. And then I just find a way to get it done in either way. But I think having a good support group is is crucial. Like my business manager is my father in law, and we're very close. Um, he's the vice president of the foundation. My wife and I uh go everything together. She's a great support system. I travel like 150 days out of the year for my keynote speaking. Um, like probably 200 days I do events throughout the year for the foundation and for myself personally, but she's great at keeping the household going when I'm on the road speaking and and on, you know, doing that stuff. But, uh, I think support is a huge thing. So if your spouse isn't into it, then it's a little bit more of an uphill battle. But if you have the right people that you surround yourself with and your spouse isn't into it, then you still buy a marina and start a restaurant and it's no big deal because she might not she might not like it when you buy it but boy does she tell people that you know she's so happy that we have it in our lives and you know I'm I'm uh I'm trying to build something where my kids can can fall into it if they want or they don't have to um you know I'm not selfishly building this saying like my kids are going to run this you know empire that I'm trying to build no if they want to do something with it great if they want something else in life I'll help support them any way I can you know we always want our kids to do better than us and I feel like that's the same with me, no matter how good I do or um, whatever I, business I start, if, if they want to do the same thing, also if they want something else, I will help them be more successful than I am. And I'm okay with that.
1: And, and having had firsthand experience of it myself, mm-hmm. a family business that's successful, that you figure out how to make work while well, continuing to be a great family together, that's an amazing achievement.
2: Oh yeah, I mean it's a little bit slow right now for the restaurant business this time of year up in Maine, and uh, we went in the one night and it was a slow night. But then I look over and there's my business partner Bill who owns a restaurant with me, um, and he's got a group of twelve people in there. And then Kelsey and I are in there a group of eight people, and then my other business partner Zach's in there with his mom and his uh, his mom and and her partner, uh, you know her her boyfriend and his daughter, and then his wife actually is on a girls' night in the other room with with his two sister-in-laws. And then uh, and then my buddy Andy, who's the other owner, there's four of us, he's in there, and he's got a table of, of six people. So it, it's cool because we all were like, well, it's kind of slow, so we'll go spend some money down there, make sure our staff is taken care of. Um, we got to eat anyway, so we might as well
1: eat, eat Got to eat,
2: you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, I think um, I've been fortunate with – uh, living through my injuries, I understand how bad my injuries are. I know we haven't talked about it too much, but my injuries, um, luckily they don't def- define me anymore. And that was my big thing, right? My kids, I don't want them to feel different or like they had a less um, exciting childhood because of who I am and have my arms and legs gone. So we do a lot. I'm very well known in the community. And when people describe me, a lot of times it's, you know, Travis Mills is the guy that um, has the foundation or then it's like you know Chloe and Dax's dad uh the marina or the restaurant yeah, yeah, like the guy with no arms and no legs like it takes them four to five times of trying to describe and say the guy with no arms and no legs and i think that's been a real i think that's been a you know uh a key to my success right i get people to look past my injuries and to see me for who i am and we live in a nation where i can do whatever i want um with the right drive and motivation and and the right mentors right i got solid mentors that I bounced almost every idea off from. And the thing is, when they say that's not going to work, that's when I double down on it, because I want to prove them wrong. Um, like, I'm a Michigan fan, because my dad's a Michigan State fan. Just because, I mean, I have nothing. <laughs> I had no loyalties to anybody growing up. My dad's a State fan. I was like, okay, well, I'll show you.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> I love it. So, Travis, maybe maybe let's go there. Can you bring me back to maybe the day before your accident or incident. what? What do you prefer to call that fateful day? Ah, uh, just I don't know. The day I got hurt. The day I got you got hurt. Okay, so maybe take me yeah. to twenty-four hours before that moment you got hurt. I mean, we would go on patrols. So
2: I was over in Afghanistan, my third du- uh, tour of duty uh, with my guys. I was a squad leader. We'd go on patrols and um, just go do a bunch of, you know. Things to help the villagers out around us, build wells uh, or dig wells, build schools, you know, humanitarian that do some first aid for the people that were, you know, maybe hurt. And they don't have the right um, medical supplies that we have. Um, and it's funny because I remember I, I could really jump high and I could I could do some pretty cool spinning back kick things. And how, how tall were you when you uh, before your accident? Uh, I was six, three and a half. But I was like 6'4 in boots. But um, Yeah,
1: what would you have weighed back then? 250. Yeah, so you're a pretty serious-looking soldier when you show up to say hi to a civilian, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, that was a big guy.
2: Um, but I remember, like, I ran up a, a, a barrier. I jumped off from it, did a sweet roundhouse kick or something like that to, hit, to a water bottle. I landed funny and twisted my ankle. And, I, you know, I was told not to go on the patrol that next day. I was like, no, nah, your, your foot's messed up. But I went on air patrol. Me, the platoon sergeant, and the platoon leader went on every single patrol. Um, and everything was normal. And then um, we were supposed to have that day off from patrols, actually. Like, it we was supposed to be like a down day. Just, like, redo your your gear, clean your rifle, you know, all this stuff. And we got a phone call from the village elder uh, that morning about, like, needing help with something in the village. And we strapped our gear on, and we were
1: like, yeah. And this was an Afghani person, not an American person. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was like the, what we maybe considered the the mayor, right? They got they called the village elder, and he asked us for some help, and we went down uh, to the village. The, one of them around us, and we were on patrol, um, and we always had a guy in front of us with a minesweeper. So yeah, it was it was a crazy time because they were because of rules and engagement. Um, the president of Afghanistan, President Karzai, told uh, our administration at the time um, that the the fact that we could go around at nighttime uh, scared us people. We shouldn't be, we should do that no more. And our administration was like, okay, we'll stop patrolling at nighttime. And it was kind of, and again, not bitter, but um, it was the rules of engagement. Like we couldn't shoot the guys that were putting bombs in the ground at nighttime. We could see them. We could watch them, um, but we couldn't go out and
1: get them. And we couldn't do anything because we were told we couldn't go out there and we how hard to just is that of... to watch them doing that and do nothing when everything you've been trained to do is to do something
2: yeah i mean it's pretty rough you know and um they knew it so they know that they like they're not the taliban or the enemy are not dumb people right they might not have the sophisticated equipment that we have but they're not dumb so they knew our rules of engagement like we would get in a firefight and if we had helicopters come on station as soon as they threw the rifle, their AK-47 on the ground, and the helicopter came up to him, if it was not in his hands, he was no longer a combatant. So he, you could see the, the AK-47 right next to him, but the helicopter could not engage. And they shoot from so far away, and because of all the bombs that were on the ground, we had to move at a snail's pace with one guy in the front with a minesweeper
1: sweeping the ground. And so of course, this is exactly the way the enemy behaves as well, right? yeah i'm being facetious yeah i was like uh no they don't, don't have know. any of those
2: rules do they no it was funny we would go on patrol and we'd go to a certain some two two certain towns and all of a sudden here comes the cars and here comes these big old jingle trucks we call them like big semi trucks and they have all these you know afghan males on them staring at us knowing like okay well we're gonna get in a fight with them in a little bit like they're going into the village or they're going to set up to ambush us and you, every time, every time, you know, we would move and then they would go after us. Um, but they wouldn't do anything right there on the road with us.
1: And you no, couldn't stop them on the way in, even though you knew exactly what was about to happen. Yeah, no. So, So uh, again, I want everybody to know, like, I'm not bitter,
2: you know, like, I'm not bitter about this. This is just the way it was. Um, I feel like there is a lot of similarities with Vietnam and with Iraq and Afghanistan, right? There's... You know, with Vietnam, there was never going to be like a mission success complete. We win uh, with Iraq and Afghanistan. There was never going to be that either. Um, but we were supported by the the people of this great nation, so that was different from Vietnam. But anyways, I we went on patrol that day. We swept the ground with a minesweeper. Um, it didn't alarm anything, and we came to a short like halt. And I I had the two forty Bravo machine guns, and I was in charge of both of them. Um and when we set him up, you know, we were ready and to for, for
1: a layman. Tell me what a what a two forty Bravo is.
2: Uh, so it's a machine gun. It's the heaviest machine gun that we carry on patrols. So it's most firepower in the battlefield.
1: And, it and how would it compare to two. an M sixteen or an AR fifteen or an AK forty seven or something that? Well, so an AR fifteen or AK forty seven shoots a, like
2: you put one round in and shoot at one at a time. Or I guess AK forty seven can be fully automatic, but you only have like a thirty round magazine. Um this is a belt fed machine gun, so all the rounds are linked up together. And whenever we went on patrol we'd always put our bags, we'd have we call it rat tail and pigtail, which means like we'd have the rounds coming out the top and the bottom. So whenever we came to a short halt, we would snap in anywhere we from four thousand to eight thousand rounds in case we got into it and they would just like we just feed the feed the two hundred forty Bravos um from our backpacks and they'd just rip through rounds if we had to. But um uh, my guys were so good at their job, right? That the Taliban stopped targeting the guys in the village and started targeting us because we'd get in a firefight. They'd shoot from somewhere. Our guys would be in the village or in, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even understand what hit them. And we were taking we would just knock them out with uh, 240 Bravos, like just ripping them apart. And they started targeting, like, okay, where are they going to set up? What, what, what part of dirt are they going to go into? And they're, like I said, they're sophisticated, so they, they knew what a minesweeper was. It had ground penetrating radiation, so it was supposed to be able to see if the soil was uh, upset. And the day I hit the bomb, there was uh, 13 in a row. And the first seven were, were normal, but the last six were what they called daisy-chained, and they call them squad killers, so they're all looped together. So the guy in the front hits, hits one of them, and then it blows six up behind him. Or seven, or whatever it was. Um, that was six total. So it goes up five. So so I hit the first one. My backpack, I put it on the ground after it was marked clear and I landed on top of a bomb. When the bomb went off, it took my right arm, right leg off instantly. Uh, they never found those pieces of me. I got thrown on the left side of my face and I rolled over on my back and I saw the aftermath, right? So my right side is completely gone. My left leg is snapped at the bone. Some muscle and tendon holding it on, a little bit of skin. Basically, I don't know how gruesome this is going to sound but um my left ankle bone on the outside was touching my left thigh um if that makes sense they had to like tie it on like to my leg my leg my thigh and my my ankle were like tied together and then I know I laugh I shouldn't right but um and then my left wrist was blown out really bad but I still had would use my thumb and index and middle finger
1: on the so left side you still had your, your arm and your hand at that yeah. point or at least part my of wrist, it my wrist my wrist is
2: blown out really bad and my um my pinky and anything were mangled up, but the
1: rest of it was, uh, you know, working somewhat. Even though the, the right gone. side, both arms and leg, arm and leg were gone.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I actually, because I was a bigger guy, my side plates were in. A lot of guys didn't wear the side plates, not because they were too cool, but just because of the fit. It would make my, the plate carrier more like, like a hula hoop. I and mean, they'd have to like deal with it swinging around. But since I was a, I mean, I bench pressed a lot. I was, I was a big dude. Uh, the side plate helped me actually. And keep everything snug. So I had the side plate, in, and a golf ball size of shrapnel almost went through the whole entire um, sappy plate they call it, and it would have cut if if I would have a side, it would have cut me in half. But uh, luckily, I had my side plate in, so it caught it. But when those, I hit the ground those, over, so
1: I, Those side plates saved your life in that sense. Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah. Definitely. And then, um, so when I saw the aftermath of what happened, my medic was right on me within seconds, and I told him, I said, "Dan, you're not going to save me. Like, go save my guys."
1: And I need everybody to know, like, it was not suicidal. That was so not I hate, me I hate to interrupt brave. you, Travis, but you thought you were going to die. Yeah. Well, f- I, why did you think that? M- maybe a stupid question, but what was in your mind? Uh, I've seen
2: guys die for a lot less injury. So I thought, no way am I going to survive this. Um, so it'll be over quick. I knew that. It'd be over quick, and I just told my medic, don't worry about it. You're not going to save me. But he ignored me, put tourniquets on so, all my
1: limbs. Again, I hate to interrupt you, but it's so critical in that sorts of situation you're in complete shock yes
2: uh yeah i I guess so
1: like here's the thing so are you in any pain at the time that you're aware of no no pain that's what adrenaline has taken over or what what yep in those moments where you're telling your medic to leave you alone to die to go take care of the other guys how do you have the presence of mind to think with that level of clarity travis i love movies um And in my head,
2: I saw the movie Saving Private Ryan over and over again with the medic getting shot in the stomach. And when the medic gets shot in the stomach in the movie, he gets a liver shot, so he realizes he's going to die. And as soon as he realizes he's going to die, he begs for his mom, he cries out for uh, his mom, he cries out to live, and and begs for his life and ultimately dies. And you see, I told myself, no matter what happens to me, uh, I'm not going to be that guy. And that was every deployment, right? Every deployment I said, whatever happens, I'm not going to be that guy. What guy did you want to be? Well, I mean, I just my last memories for my guys. I didn't want them to have. Okay, so let me back up. So I was a pretty big guy, right? Uh, I never showed fear. I exuded confidence. I was the first one in a firefight, last one off the battlefield. Like we got in a firefight one the first day in country, and I was I was fairly I was fairly young to be promoted, but then I was put in the senior squad leader spot, which is unheard of for the, the I had the least amount of time in grade right? Least my time in service, least my time with E6. Um, but I had two guys that were like, I don't know, four or five years in more than me that had, you know, been E6s for like five, five, six years and I was like their boss. And some of the guys didn't get it. Like some of the guys in my unit, like they couldn't understand why because they didn't know me that well. And uh, my first sergeant knew who I was. He was on my deployment before. He knew who I was. And I was a little bit, I not want to say animal, but like you know, I was a little bit not reckless, but like I, I exuded confidence. And the first firefight we got into, we got mixed up really good with the Taliban that day. Um, they were shooting mortars and RPGs at us, and we had some guys down at dry riverbed. And we were on one side of this dry riverbed shoreline shooting over, and this, the unit was in the middle. Our our first, uh, first and second squad, and our PL and stuff, they were caught in the middle of everything. And when we opened up. Like, everybody took a knee and got down in the prone position, and I was the only one that didn't, right? I was walking back and forth controlling the rates of fire for my guns. I was yelling at another guy that was messing up, shooting. Uh, he had a machine gun but a smaller caliber. He, was, he wasn't doing it right. So I kicked him, and I yelled at him because he had been in combat before he knew better. And then my first sergeant was like, oh, my gosh, third, you know, third squad. He didn't say, oh, my gosh, but he's like, third squad, go get one of our uh, squad leaders that went down, right? So you want to take a whole eight guys off a of firing line. And I was like, no, no, first sergeant, I got it. I said, I got it. So I threw him my M4, actually, because he's was just going to hold me up. So I threw him my rifle, right, and then I ran down to the dry Riverbed, and I ran halfway across where he was pinned down. I put him on my back, and I ran him out. And then everybody else got out of there. Um, and after I set him down behind the building, I went to drink some water. My first sergeant started yelling for me again. And I was like, oh, here we go. So I ran back. I had to get my rifle, right? Uh, rounds were ripping over me. I got my rifle. Me and the Ford Observer, he had called in the Kiowa, like the helicopters. Um, I popped the, the, the smoke for us to exfil to leave, and um, the Kiowas came on station, and we got back. And these two guys that had been deployed in a different unit, one, one guy I did yell at, like, do your job. I think I might have said some other words, but, you know, I said, you know what you're doing, do your job. Stop acting like you're a newbie, and right in the middle of a firefight. And uh, we got back and we had to get ammo, like refill our ammo. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get some ammo. Who's going to come with me? Um, and these two guys like jumped up like, yeah, we'll come, we'll come. And they, they said, look, Sergeant Mills, we got to be honest with you. Like, we didn't know how you were promoted to staff sergeant because you're always nice. You're happy. You're laughing. You're having a good time. You're not like any other staff sergeant we've ever met. And then when you're the squad leader for the weapon squad, which is a senior one, you're the youngest. It's crazy. And they said, but after today, like we get it. And then they both said, we'll follow you to hell and back. And that meant the world to me, right? Like, I, I wasn't out there to win, win any awards or do it for the glory. I was there to, like, be there for my guys. But, but again, when I got blown up, I didn't want my guys' last I, like, thoughts of me to be me yelling for my mom, begging not to die. Because um, what if I did die, right? What if the last memories they had of me were me yelling out not to die in begging for my life when they considered me one of the toughest, you know, SOBs around? Not that I was in, not, like, a mean toughness. Like, I was never, like not a mean guy, but but in in the, I guess I'm really trying to, I don't know why I'm watching my words here. I'm just trying to say it the right way. I was tough when it came to fighting the enemy. I was tough when it came to getting the mission done. I was tough to, you know, never show any weakness and never show any fear. So if I was begging for my life, screaming out in pain, and that's the last memory they had of me, that probably would affect affected them for their whole entire lives. And to me, it was more important to just stay calm, cool, and collected. Matter of fact, I reached up to my trucker, mic. And I raided my lieutenant with my left hand that was still, like, left over. And I said, hey, six, this is four. I I got guys injured. I need your medic with mine. And he sent Doc Voice over. Doc Voice worked on the other two guys. Then he worked on me. And my platoon sergeant and uh, my medic, the first medic, Dan, they put tourniquets on all four of my limbs within 30 seconds. And then they got me a sternum IV, which sucked. That's the only part that hurt. They took this big 18-gauge needle, and they just wrecked it right down in my sternum because that's the only place they could get entropy. Wow. Yeah. And then they put me on a helicopter, and on the helicopter, they had this, like, protective goop they put in my eyes. So it looked like I was looking through beer goggles. Um, and one of my guys was yelling out in pain. And uh, I, I couldn't pick my head up. I was strapped down. But I got my arm out of the strap, my left arm. Because I kept yelling out the flight mat. I said, hey, hey. And then I said, hey. And I said some other choice words. And I took my arm out and swung it over my head and told him, take his helmet off. And he took his helmet off and said, hey, give him, I'm sorry I yelled at you. But give my guys water and tell them they're going to be Okay um and one guy was every right to be yelling he was in a lot of pain he actually felt his in, injuries
1: and, and even um, at that point on the helicopter you didn't feel your injuries yet no no and then um what why do you think that was travis it's adrenaline just adrenaline. They, yeah they say it was shock but
2: i mean and maybe it was i've never been in shock before that i you know besides for maybe that but but i was so focused on everybody else and everything around me and keep my head straight um when i landed i actually got pushed into surgery and then i started feeling the pain on the table and they tried to they were starting to medically sedate me and i kept trying to sit up and the nurse kept pushing me down and finally yelled at her I said hey quit touching me please like i'm fine like leave me alone i gotta get back to my guys and uh my feet i'm just gonna get back underneath me and we're gonna go back about our, our job and the nurse said so, sergeant mills i don't know how you're still awake right now but you need to go to sleep and then she knocked me out and then actually those knocking like the fluids were knocking me out i looked at her and i said my little girl am i ever gonna see her because my daughter chloe was only six months old and i thought well shit now i'm losing control of the situation i'm losing consciousness and i'm no longer in control and that freaked me out but then i was out you know and then um nine doctors and seven nurses actually worked on me for 14 hours straight um to keep me alive gave me blood from their veins because the blood ran out of the blood bank that day which is incredible had people rush to the doors of the hospital with a positive blood and universal blood to give it to me right to keep me alive and And some
1: people on your medical Team that were working on you mm-hmm. had to give blood in those moments for you.
2: Yep, yep. And I got to meet the medical team actually. All of them they flew into an event at my foundation here in Maine, and uh, I got to meet them. But, but kind of a this is an offshoot story, but kind of fun story. One of the nurses that worked on me, Judy Newber, that's her name. Um, she she worked on me, and she was in her head like, "Why don't we let this man die with dignity? What's he got left? Like, I was a triple amputee, you know." But and she wasn't like saying she wanted me to die, but just like what do I have left to offer? And she was house sitting for a friend in Maine, and the lady goes, "Oh my gosh, you got to see what this guy's doing um, across the lake." And she's like, "Well, what's he doing?" She said, "Well, some guy lost both arms and legs over in Afghanistan, got blown up." And Judy's like, "Who's that?" Like, I got to see this. And uh, turns out she worked on me, and she uh, she spoke. To you didn't some know of my she gals. was right there in Maine with you no well, she lived in like uh virginia or tennessee at the time she was oh, house I sitting i see now i saw her today she now she she works uh, at the hospital up here she lives up here and right down the road from the marina she volunteers i mean uh from the foundation she volunteers she was in the office today and the fun joke i like to tell people is when i'm with her um i uh like at the galas and things i'm like you know it's kind of weird Cause usually the only person in the room to see me naked is my wife, but now there's two in the room and, uh, that's right. Judy's seen me naked before. So a little bit bashful now, but, but uh, (laughs) I love that
1: you bring humor to everything. I hear humor in all of your talks and your podcasts and in your work and, you know, you tell all the funny jokes about, you know, anytime somebody could say something funny about like, oh, I don't know, you're. Uh, you're pulling my leg or all these sorts of funny things that you said all the time. Yeah. No, I I know everything third hand now. So
2: I'm pretty, pretty wise. (laughs) But uh, I just, I think I I really tell jokes because I'm comfortable with my own skin, right? This is me. This is who I am. And I I haven't accepted that. And I think that's a big part of my recovery was accepting that I got injured, accepting this is my new life because I know we haven't covered, you know, the new book bounce back yet, but. The most important chapter in there, to me, not the most important, they're all, all 12 principles are good, but the one that I love the most is is stop asking why, because I think you can drive yourself crazy asking why something happened, why is this, why me, and I had to quit asking why this happened to me, and I had to accept that this is who I am, this is my life now, This is I'm not going to regrow my arms and legs, I'm not going to you know, magically have hands again. So if I stop asking why did this happen and look because there's never and the thing is it's not that I'm giving up on the like the question why I well I am but I guess it's that I understand there's no answer that's ever going to be like oh that makes sense that makes me feel so much better about myself you know Um, so I don't ask why this happened and I want people to look past my injuries and see me so humor is a great way to do that and I found that when you make people feel comfortable around you um because they don't know what to say we're raised in a society where like you see someone like me and a kid's like what happened to his arm and the parents like no no you know we're supposed to be afraid to say something not because like i'm some kind of weird monster but because like everybody thinks you're gonna offend somebody you're gonna hurt their feelings and i'm the first to correct like hey no no i'll tell you what happened i mean i didn't eat my vegetables so hope you eat your vegetables for your mom and dad but uh but I use humor because it helps. What
1: ha- I'm just curious, davis yeah. When it, in an airport or on the street or something, if that kind of an interaction occurs, what's the reaction of the child? And what's the reaction of the parents? I just they get
2: a laugh out of it. You know, I tell kids I work with Iron Man, so I go from like this crazy robot to someone who works with Iron Man. My hand does a 360, right? So like I show that first, I'm like, check this out, and uh, <laughs>
1: you got a bionic hand.
2: Yeah, and it comes out like, oh, cool! I want one of those. I'm like, well, hold what you got for now. Um, but, but no, I, I again, I, I use humor because it helps everybody feel comfortable. Um, because not everybody has the same attitude as I I do, right? Not everybody gets injured is like going to recover the way I recovered and have the same demeanor that I have. So I use it so that people can feel comfortable around me, and it, it works really well. And I don't, and it's not like I think people are bad or they're mean or they're weird to like feel awkward around me. I think it's just that's human
1: nature. So if I can make them comfortable, that's what I do. And obviously, you've now written two books, and I know what it's like to be an author and to write, I think, the kinds of books that you've written insofar as uh, you wrote something that is very meaningful to you, that is radically personal to you, that you clearly have poured yourself into, that you clearly did for reasons of contribution. And so, uh, what are the things that you hope people take from this book?
2: So... Great question.
1: I'm gonna do a roundabout answer if
2: that's okay. Um, so I do you keynote can go speaking. anywhere you want, Travis. <laughs> I got you. So I do a keynote speaking around the nation. Um, I was just in Colorado yesterday. Uh, and, you know, in, in New Mexico last uh, like four days ago, and, and then Florida next week. You know, like
1: and, and I do this big conferences, and every time uh, I, I so what speak, happens when you walk out on stage after they introduce you, or, or when you come out on stage, I should say, how how well, do you appear on stage? First thing I tell people is, oh, my gosh, I'm so nervous to be here
2: standing in front of you now with these bright lights on me. I just hope I don't bomb this, you know, because last time. Um, and that's how I started off.
1: But, I don't bomb this because of last
2: time. Yeah, you know how last time went. but uh, so I tell And everybody laughs. At, well, I'm sure they're shocked a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, my walkout music, I'm thinking about changing it. Right now it's Warrior by Atreyu. It's like, I am a warrior. But I'm thinking about changing it to... Uh, just a loop of, I'm half the man I used to be. <laughs> and I think I'm going to do that, actually. But uh, and thats I know it sounds like a joke because I'm telling it to you right now, but I think I'm going to change my music to just be on a loop of, I'm half the man I used to be, over and over and over. Um, But but the reason I wrote this book, Bounce Back, is because people would come up to me after I get on speaking, they still do, and they would tell me, like, oh, I'm going through this, but that's nothing compared to what you're going through. And I have to remind people that their biggest problem is their biggest problem. And they're not necessarily unique to what they're going through. Like other people are going through it. And some people seem like they're so lost and they're so hopeless or they think that nobody's going to understand what they're going through. So I wrote Bounce Back to contradict those thoughts, right, to go ahead and showcase other people's stories, a widower, cancer survivor, divorce, house fire, um, sexual abuse, uh, drug overdose or drug addiction, and showcase these people that I highlight their stories where they were at, how they went to the very bottom, and how they were able to bounce back and get out of that. And then because people always wonder, like, hey Travis, how do you do it? Like, how'd you get better and have this mindset? And I'm just like, I had to. They're like, Yeah, but like what like but, but how? And like I'm not a doctor. I am actually I got three doctorates. Uh they're honorary. I count them. I get three of them modders.
1: So uh, if I refer to you as a, a, yeah. a doctor, I have to say it three times, right? Doctor, 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 Travis. That you know,
2: it's kind of the, you know what, your, your choice. You're supposed to, but I'm not going to hold you to it. So if but, I just say doctor, uh, doctor
1: Travis, if I only say it once, is that's okay? You'll forgive me.
2: Uh, I mean, it's a little bit.
1: Doctor, doctor, doctor.
2: Yes, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but the thing is, like, I'm not. I'm no psychologist, no therapist. I, I, I understand what I went through, and I understand like I just had to get better, right? I was like, I was right there with two choices: get better or don't. I chose to get better. And sometimes people don't really like that answer. And I understand why they don't like that answer. So what I did was my collaborative author, Kathy Huck, who's a genius, just a great research author, she went and helped find uh, medical studies, research you know, studies and, and theories. And we use those towards the end of the chapter. Like, you know, this person says your mind does this. This person says you feel this way at this time. And it's all about understanding how your mind can break things down and what thoughts you can have and how to progress in life no matter what you're going through. And, you know, sometimes I feel bad because people will downplay what they're going through. And they're like, oh, well, I just have this going on. And it's like, that's real. Like, that's a real thing you're you're going through. Like, my thing getting blown up and 19 months recovery at Walter Reed, learning how to, like, feed myself with a prosthetic arm and dress myself again and, you know, get prosthetic legs to walk and drive. Like, that's all real. But that was my life. You know, that's what I went through. And I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal, you know, our, like I said, and I know I repeat myself, but like our biggest problem is our biggest problem. And it, it is just as serious to you. If you're, you have terrible anxiety or you have financial troubles that's holding you back or, you know, harming, you know, your livelihood and your family's livelihood, that's just as serious as having no arms, no legs. And I think not that, I mean, had a lady tell me she had a bad hair day, but I guess it's not that bad considering what I went through. Like that's every day is you know, a bad hair day for me. Yeah. No, hey, you're doing great. I got Bosley. It's coming <laughs> in a little thicker than I'm going to do it again. But uh but I think that's that was my main drive is I want people to realize they're not unique with what they're going through. Um other people are facing the similar problems, but there are ways out of it. And that they can learn, you know, these different techniques or steps or research papers or studies or theories that that we highlight in there that will help them overcome what they're facing and um it's been a really neat project you know and i've been really excited because i've gotten great feedback so far on it and people are like hey i really need to read that or that was amazing or this is awesome and um you know it's funny my first book like i was talking about i have two books out my first book uh, tough as they come the uh the two medics on the helicopter they wrote my wife a letter after i yelled at them to like give my guys water they wrote my wife a whole letter about like i can't believe this guy in his state of injury and, and where he was at like yelling at us take care of his guys and, and it's a full page we actually put it we published it in the book it's pretty cool they let, they let us publish it but uh, I was just given the chance to live through injuries and I have a wonderful wife um, 15 years of marriage we have two kids uh, my son Dax is six years old he's named after the medics
1: Daniel and Alexander um, and hold on hold on and, slow down for a second your son's named after those two medics Daniel and Alexander that's why. you're yeah, so DAX came
2: out of mashing their names up. So they made it possible for me to lift them injuries. And my wife said that I already have the Travis Mills Foundation and the Travis Mills uh, group that I can't name something else after myself because it's a little too conceited. So instead of having Travis Field and Mills Jr., we have Dax Field and Mills. Um, and That's awesome. And my daughter, she's uh, she's probably the biggest reason I am who I am today. You know? Not she, to be like she was alive when you had your… Six, six months old. We six learned how months. to walk
1: together. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you did learn to walk together. That's an amazing part of your story, yeah. isn't it? What was, tell me a little bit about learning to walk with your teeny child daughter.
2: Well, like, I had to rebuild all my strength because I was so weak at one point I couldn't roll right or left or sit up by myself. My stomach muscles were all messed up and my core muscles were, you know, that's my stomach muscles. They were, they were bad. Hip flexors were messed up. And I had to rebuild all that. But and then once taking I got on my. poop sh- was a hard thing or dealing with the aftermath of it? I had stitches. Like in my butt, I got a huge dent in my right butt cheek. But I have stitches. Like
1: it hurt to go to the bathroom, and then I had to have people help me. Like that was the most embarrassing part of my life, right? And um, and you're not a man who at that point is used to asking for much help, no, particularly help no. doing basic things.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, not at all, um, not at all. Like most humbling and embarrassing thing ever is to have to ask for help for that stuff. Um, but. But then I got my prosthetic arm at five weeks, and I never had to ask for help again for that stuff. Yeah, but as I got my short legs, right, I was getting more proficient on them. I had these little legs that I could walk around on, and it was safe. You know, I wouldn't if it wasn't safe, I would never done it. But I could hold Chloe's hand, and Chloe would walk around with me, and I'd walk around with her, and we go all over the the gym you know on your first prosthetic
1: legs your smaller legs yeah yeah Yeah. my smaller legs yeah so you weren't too much taller than her i mean you were but you were
2: Uh, yeah yeah i mean
1: now she's got me beat she's like not on my
2: prosthetic legs i wear now but like when i take my legs off my even my son's taller when he stands up you know um but i do i do admit to people you know if if chloe wasn't born or wasn't alive like wasn't in the picture would i be the same person probably not you know probably not i i had a very close friend just passed away in childbirth. Um, She and the baby didn't make it. And her husband is a close friend as well. Like they're family friends of ours. And his, I believe he's going to be okay. You know, never the same, but be okay because his daughter is three, their daughter they have together is three. And she is, you know, she's, she's going to get him through this. And uh, it's a lot to put on a little kid. I understand that, but, you know, I don't know how he would react if if Emma wasn't here, if his daughter wasn't here. So um, I think kids, you know, kids are, are amazing. Like, I also think my uh, my wife doesn't give me any chance to have excuses. She doesn't really take no crap from me. Um, you know, I run to the grocery store if she needs something. I this morning, like she we went, we went to a comedy show last night and went a little hard, but she was feeling pretty had, rough. And she had like, a
1: couple of cocktails last night. Uh, <laughs> couple, yeah, they went through a doctor, 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 mills.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we got in like late, like one thirty in the morning, had to get up early and she called me up. She wanted breakfast. She's like, when you drop Chloe off before you go to the foundation, I'm going to need a sandwich please. And I'm like, okay. So, you know, I had no problem. I'd go get her a sandwich from the bagel mania bagel shop down the road and bring it back to her. And, you know, she doesn't give me a chance to have excuses and, and we get the chance to live life to the fullest because we were given the opportunity. And,
1: and just and I, for my yeah. edification, uh, Travis, when you go to get uh, when you drop off your daughter and you go to pick mm-hmm. up a bagel for your spouse, um, what's that like? You have four prosthetics, yes? No, only, I I don't wear a right arm,
2: so my oh my you, right you right don't arm, ever wear a right arm. Sometimes, like if I go kayaking or like action sports, I'll wear it. Okay, uh, for protection and for functionality, but it, it, my arm's so short that the prosthetic doesn't fit that great and it falls off and it's very rigid. So it's not really a benefit to have it on. As so what's your I, normal I, setup on a normal day like today when you're going uh, to get a bagel for your wife? Two legs that are called X threes. They're like uh, the they're very high tech legs. They have four distinct functions. They're little computers. They help me with my weight shift. They make me I'm like five foot eleven, six foot on them. I used to be like I said six foot three, but I'm like five eleven now. And then they're Bluetooth, so I lock them in with my little remote on my phone, so I can drive like everybody else. But
1: uh, and if I were to see you walking from a little bit of a distance, you know, just like you would no- notice somebody walking down the street in front of you, maybe turning a corner, would I? What would I notice about your gait, or would I notice anything? Oh yeah, I definitely notice. I, I walk. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think
2: I walk smooth. It feels smooth to me. But when I watch video, I'm like, oh wow,
1: yeah, that's a little bit. So I, I would notice you're not walking like a a, a normal able able-bodied person. I also wear shorts, so you can see my legs. <laughs> You're yeah. showing that shit off. <laughs> you got to show
2: some leg to get what you need, uh, you know, but, uh, and I have a prosthetic on my left arm that, cause my arms at the wrist. So I got a prosthetic on my left arm that I, uh, pitched, you know, the tripod on my steering wheel, grab my wallet out. So yeah, no, I, I called up No problem driving whatsoever. No, no, except for I drive too fast. Cause I get away with it. Uh, cause, uh, what happens when the know, cops pull you over? I just speeding? tell my foot. I saw my foot got stuck. I apologize. My foot got stuck. I couldn't feel <laughs> it. But in, in truth, like, I have a blacked out Yukon with, uh, I have a blacked out Yukon that has, like, an American flag grill. So, like, everybody knows it's me. So, the cops kind of, you know. No, I, I follow the rules. Um, <laughs> I love it, I, I feel like I'm more, not that everyone's ever made me feel this way, right? But, like, if, say I got in a car accident and it was my fault, I'm more likely to get my license taken away. So, I'm, like, very cautious, uh, when I drive, I make sure I do everything right. Not because anybody's out to get me, but you could make an argument. Even though I'm licensed, like I had to take a driver's license test uh, when I got all my adaptions put in, and everything's up. Like everything is legal the way it should be. I feel like if I ever did something where I, I mean, they would, they would look at taking my life my license away. Um, you know, just because all the adaptions and all that stuff. Maybe they wouldn't. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. But uh but, but you yeah, try to went, be a good driver is what you're saying Wow, well, i like to race but yeah so <laughs> i uh i'll be honest with you i got home one day and i was on the phone i wasn't paying attention i put my my car in park i thought i put it in drive and i walked inside and my father-in-law called me up he's my neighbor he goes are you okay i'm like yeah like 10 minutes after i got home he goes well your yukon's in the woods dude and i'm like what and i left it in driving and i live on a hill it rolled down a hill it smacked my shed and it went almost, it went kind of, not really, a little bit into the woods. So um, <laughs> like today, right? Uh, I, I got that work done to fix it. So I dropped my daughter at school. I went to the dealership, picked my Yukon up. My father-in-law dropped me off. And then I, I called Bagel Mania. I ordered the sandwich. I walked in. They all said good morning to me. They know who I am. Uh, picked up six uh, six sourdough bagels and a my my wife's uh, sausage, egg, and cheese bagel sandwich. I took it home and... I changed my shorts. I didn't like the shorts I was wearing, so I changed my shorts out. And then I went to the, my foundation for a check presentation. Yeah, and then I had to take my father-in-law to pick up his his truck. We had some work done, so I had to take him to pick his truck up. And then, I, like like right now, when I when I say my say la vie, I got to go pick my daughter up from or take my daughter to basketball practice. I don't. And my wife doesn't give me any any. Here's the thing. So um, I don't have a lot of excuses that I can give that that my wife or anybody's gonna buy. You know, I need help with my legs on every day. I'm not gonna sit here and pretend like I don't. I need help putting my arm on the right way. I need help buttoning my pants. Um but after that, after those five minutes, I'm pretty independent. I still need help with some things, but I don't give myself the excuse. You know, I, I get this. And chance are you ever live. in
1: a wheelchair for any reason? Oh yeah. You heart. are?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I get home, take my legs off, take my hand take my hand off. I got a hook that's way more functioning. Uh it has
1: way more function, I mean, but it's a hook. I can't
2: wear it in public. Yeah. Why
1: not? That sounds like it might be kinda of cool. Is it free nah, people out? nah, I would just wear the I wear the hand. It works. It yeah, would see but if you I put have an eye a, yeah. patch on and you had the hook and shit. I mean
2: <laughs> Well yeah, that's
1: true. That's true. Yeah.
2: But uh but no, I, I'm fortunate where I have the um I I my wheelchair at home, you know? And yeah. Yeah, I do I do all that stuff. So And when you travel me, yeah, well, how
1: do you travel?
2: I got little short legs that wear in the hotels. Uh so we just go Luckily, I'm a member of uh, all the club, that, you know, the American uh, Admirals Club and the Delta Sky Mouse Club. So
1: I travel a lot. Just yeah, and, you're normally, and you wear your normal uh, longer legs when you travel like you would out in the world. Oh, my father-in-law is a DD on our trips. He's a designated
2: drinker because uh, he knows <laughs> I'm going to drive home. I drive to the airport by the hour. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, we, live in a, we live in an amazing time, an amazing world. And I'm sure it's only going to go up from here. But a guy staying, like a guy with no arms, no legs, laying in a hospital bed, wondering, why did I even live? Right. And I'll be very honest. Like, I was like, how is this going to be better? What do I have left to offer? And who can I even be? I saw my wife for the first time uh, four days after that. And I told her she should leave me. Take everything we have. You can go house, cars, money. It's all yours. And it wasn't that I was giving up on our marriage or giving up on her. It was that I was going to be a burden. I had nothing left to give her and Chloe. And there was no way she should stay with a guy like me, right? And I would give her anything she needed. My financially, whatever I had was hers for the rest of my life. And, um, but you take that guy with the doubt, the fear, the unknown, and the willingness to accept that I have nothing. That you know that my wife should leave me. Like, not that I wanted her to, but like, I got nothing for. Her, in my opinion, at that time to so now, a guy that has been able to recover for 19 months have my wonderful daughter by my side my wife my son now own a you know I own quite a few I don't I'm not sure what the right number is to say like there's like seven or eight different things I'm a part of let's just put it that way and you have and, businesses you have your foundation yeah, foundation businesses stuff like that um other offshoot businesses you live in a
1: beautiful part of the country in Maine you're yeah, an honorary yeah. Canadian sort of <laughs>
2: yeah yeah and and I'm able to do all this stuff and if you would have told me that, like I got hit eleven years ago, if you would have told me that on day one, I would never have believed it. I would never have believed it. If you would have told me that even like eight months into my recovery, I would never thought I'd have this life that I have now. And, you know, rule sixty eight or whatever it is in, in um wedding crashers, no excuses to play like a champion. So uh we just gotta get
1: after it, you know?
2: Or sixty seven, right? I I gotta look that up. I don't want to quote maybe things.
1: I'm sure it was sixty nine. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. You you asked a question there that I've heard you mention. You said, "Who can I even be?" Yeah. So if I were to come to you, Travis, and say, for say, for whatever reason, I was at a place in my life where I had been, um, you know, knocked down psychologically, physically, maybe both, experienced Mm -hmm. something that I considered to be an incredible challenge, maybe even. Uh, a tragedy, maybe even a, a horror that was uh, inflicted upon me. And I found myself in a situation where I was asking the question, who can I even be? Who can, what can I even offer to my spouse? Who can I even be? How how does one answer the, who can I even be question?
2: Well, I think you got to get to the root of the problem. So for me, I deal with a lot of people with survivor's guilt. And I say, look, those pe those buddies that didn't make it back home, like, don't don't go down the same road. Like, they didn't make it back home, but you did. Live to honor them. Live to honor their mom and dad and their sister and brother and their wife and their children's sacrifice, right, that they made. And you can do whatever you want because you were given the ability to do that, unlike them. So instead of dwelling on them not being here, reminisce the time you had with them and push to a better future. You were given that chance, and that's okay. Um, but... There's those kind of conversations. There's also, you know, a lot more listening and, you know, the whole two years, one mouth type situations you face. So it really depends on the person and how they're going to respond. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of where where it gets tricky. Right. Like I said, I, I have three honorary doctorates, but they're not psychology. Um, so when I do like I would not say I counsel people, when people ask me for advice. I try to figure out what they're going to respond to the best. But the biggest thing for me is like uh, the two life lessons that I tell people I, I live by, right? Number one, don't dwell on the past. Just reminisce it. I used to try to change my situation. Hospital bed, close my eyes, hope and wish and pray this never happened. I'm going to open my eyes and the nightmare's going to be over. And I open my eyes and I'm still in the hospital bed. And I had to realize that that was never going to change. So instead of dwelling on the fact I got blown up and dwelling on what I can't do, let's reminisce what I had and let's push to a better future. And the next thing I tell people is, you know what? You can't always control your situation but you can always control your attitude. And my attitude doesn't change. You know what I mean? Like I get the chance to be here. I was given the opportunity to live through my injuries because those doctors and nurses worked on me and believed in me, those medics took care of me. I was given the chance to have prosthetic legs. I was given the chance to drive and feed myself and walk and do everything. So make the best of it. You know? Do I have days where I get down? Not really, because I can accept. Acceptance was the biggest thing for me. I accept this is my new normal. This is my life. And people were like like what like what happens when you have a bad day? I'm like I probably broke my phone screen, or you know I let my car roll down a hill and smash into my shed, mess up the <laughs> bumper, and cost me three thousand um, dollars. But but that's the thing. So like I think I think what blows people away the most um, is that they they can't they can't fathom that this is just my life, you know they they imagine or they believe that I have to sit there and dwell on it or I have to sit there and be upset about it. Um, and the truth is I'm not. I don't. Now, even the rules of engagement, right? Like I'm not bitter about the war. I loved the Army. I loved it. I, the adrenaline rush from a firefight, you'll never get the same experience ever in your life. No offense if you go skydiving and because I've been skydiving. Like I'm telling you, like getting shot at and shooting at people that are trying to kill you, not that I'm like a weirdo, but like most adrenaline rush ever I've had. But I also, I also realized like, that was my past. This is my present. This is who I am. And I don't need to sit there and wonder about what if this happened or what if that happened because I can't change it. And I think that maybe is the biggest reason I didn't freak out on the ground. Uh, like I said, I didn't want to scare my guys. I thought I was going to die, so I didn't want their last memories maybe screaming out. But I realized like it's out of my hands. Whatever's going to happen today, right now, in this moment, is going to happen. Right? Just like today. like Whatever's going to happen today is going to happen. And we do our best to react. We do our best to make the most of it. And at the end of the day, I'm just grateful to still be around. You know, my mom and dad, they come back and work in my marine in the summer with me. My in-laws live next door to me. They're very close. My father-in-law hang out every day. Um, and my wife and I uh, have the craziest story. We met on MySpace through her brother. He was my medic, my first deployment. We got married 17 days in person, hanging out. And we've been you know, been married 15 plus years. And uh, i got two amazing children. So I count my blessings, not my, you know, not what I don't have.
1: You're legendary, Travis. Is, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap?
2: Uh, I tell you what, no, I appreciate the time. I I I, I got to talk to you all day. I just got to take my daughter to basketball, so I don't want to miss that. I don't want to make you miss that. Uh, and then um, the truth is, if everybody wants to check out, like, the book Bounce Back, the 12 Warrior Principles, um, High-Rate Calvary Life, I'd appreciate it. If people want to go to my website, travismillsfoundation.org or travismills.org, they're more than welcome to. And the biggest thing, if you want to follow me on social media um, at SSG Travis Mills, just because if I can help somebody going through a bad day with my videos and the fun things we do, I'm all about it, right? And um, and if you did serve, thank you for your service. I appreciate everybody out there that did serve, and I did nothing special to deserve any more accolades or any more praise. You know, I had one bad day at work, and the truth is I just walked into early retirement. I mean, I'm 36 with two feet in the grave. Can you believe it?
1: But that's that's really all I got. I do appreciate your time. Travis, God bless you. Thank you so much. You're an incredibly inspiring human being and an incredible American. And you're welcome back here anytime you want to come, brother. Absolutely. Appreciate letting me ramble. I know I went for kind of long today, but anytime hope you, have a great you day. want, as long as you want. We'll do a 12 12- 2000 hour miniseries, if you want. (laughs) sounds okay. So tomorrow, what time? No, I'm just kidding. All right. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Travis.
0: Bless you. That was the amazing and inspirational Travis Mills. To learn more about Travis and follow his adventure, go to travismills.org. And be sure to pick up a copy of his books, Bounce Back, 12 Warrior Principles to Reclaim and Recalibrate Your Life, and his biography, Tough As They Come, wherever you get your books. We want to thank Travis for joining us. And we'd also like to thank you. Thank you for pressing that play button and joining us for today's legendary conversation with Travis. And we'd like to thank Mighty Networks, one community platform to rule them all. Everyone knows that magic happens when the right people get together in the right places. Bring together your courses, content, and community in one place. Mighty is where magic happens. Go to MightyNetworks.com today. And do you want to conquer your category? partner with Autrenet to reinvent your web presence. Autrenet has been delivering category-defining websites for B2B technology companies since 1996. That's A-T-R-E dot net. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Odcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts contain nuts, all rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, accountant, priest, sorcerer, medicine man, shaman, and category designer before acting on any of today's information. Your spouse texted and said, It's okay. You can subscribe to Category Pirates at CategoryPirates.com. While you're there, make sure you order your copy of the 22 Laws of Category Design. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Jason Filippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J handle the website and technical execution. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobas do our web development. Cedric Buros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm using Dolby 80 HD technology. Shane McGowan was right. Listen to Motorhead. For the love of God, get out of the passing lane. Teach kids mental health. Thanks, Candy Dandy. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest condolences go out to Sam Bankman-Fried. Sorry, Sammy, we just ran out of time for you. Until next time, stay safe, stay legendary, and follow your different.